Section 18 of Red Rubber, the story of the rubber slave trade on the Congo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Greta Bui. Red Rubber, the story of the rubber slave trade on the Congo by Edmund Dean Morrell. Section 18. 2. Reform My rights on the Congo are indivisible. None possess any right of intervention. Such is King Leopold's answer to the protest of civilization. The tenor of he who makes that answer is so precarious that he has thought well to accompany such declarations with a series of decrees addressed to his Brussels staff, elaborating a number of reforms. Those reforms are left to the Congo staff to execute after having been drawn up by the Brussels staff. The future destinies of the Congo natives are committed to the same hands which have dealt so gently with them in the past. Reforms, the need for which the Brussels staff has always rejected, because it always denied the existence of factors requiring that attention which the commission or inquiry urgently called for, are conceded in theory, just as they were conceded in theory ten years ago by the creation of the Commission for the Protection of the Natives and the perfecting of the Organization of Justice and observe in what manner they are issued to a wandering world. We, that is, the most obedient servants of His Majesty's Brussels staff, have the honour to submit for the approval of Your Majesty the legislative and administrative measures which appear to us of a nature to continue the realisation of the programme which the King's Sovereign has been pursuing for more than a quarter of a century in Central Africa, at the price of his constant efforts and personal sacrifice. How true indeed! For the items in the programme of this Leopoldian civilization remain not only unaltered, but accentuated, reaffirmed, in tones unmistakable, breathing an arrogance born of long immunity in wrongdoing. The interpretation of sovereignty to mean personal possession, of an international trusteeship converted into private property, of African production for the pursuance of alien aims, of power absolute, unchecked, unfettered, uncontrolled, indivisible, setting itself beyond and above the law of nations. All this is emphasized in the Royal Manifesto. The personal sacrifice is exemplified by a tightening of the grip upon the revenues from the Domaine de la Couronne and Domaine Privé, while modesty still demands that the extent of the sacrifice should be withheld in other words, that the amount of those revenues should still be wrapped in mystery as unfathomable as the regenerator of Africa can make it. Any outside interference in such matters partakes of the character of positive usurpation. The realization of the program will be fulfilled with the most immutable patriotism and 
in perfect harmony with my immutable will. That form does atonement take. After this, is it necessary to examine those reforms? The produce of the soil of Central Africa still belongs to the king. Hence, too, the labor of the African without which the former is unobtainable. But the native will only be taxed in strict conformity with legality. The royal profits derived from pillage, perennial outrage, and endemic oppression have been stupendous but insufficient, as we have seen, to provide for the feeding of native witnesses whose attendance is required at Boma, the chief directing center of the king's African estate. So, too, more officers will be drafted into the king's African army to secure the effective control of the troops, but only when the revenue permits of it. And free inspectors shall be specially appointed to ensure a just relationship between European and natives in a country 800,000 square miles in extent as a preliminary to securing a more complete administrative and judicial organization which alas, is only possible through an increase in the revenue of the state. The law, we have been told of all time, protects the freedom of the native by forbidding any interference with the freedom of business transactions. And we are now informed that this principle remains unimpaired. Who could have doubted it since the only articles on the Congo which can give rise to business transactions are the private property of the absentee landlord in Europe? Have we not been told also that the state has been at much pains to protect the natives from being robbed? The native is only required to work 40 hours per month for the absentee landlord and his partners. Let the reader peruse once more the preceding chapter. In the last seven years, King Leopold's African estate has produced 11 million pounds sterling of India rubber by claiming the labor of the African natives from the rising of the sun to the setting thereof and enforcing that claim via armies and the king's mandatory has declared that the amount must be increased under a law which demands of the native not every day in every year but only 60 days if this law were applied the revenues would decrease by four-fifths and i am afraid that not only with the effective control of the king's african army to say nothing of the more complete administrative and judicial organization be delayed ad infinitum but the native witnesses in criminal cases would need to go wholly unfed and still more terrible to contemplate the next check for the liverpool school of tropical medicine might conceivably become overdue while the chances of fruitful speculation in rubber shares on the antwerp boss would be inconveniently curtailed. Personal sacrifice would clearly be too onerous a moral asset on such terms. End of section 18. Recording by Greta Boy.